Circuit 7, Alchemical Co-Creation. Like Circuit 6, this section is a bit academic and lengthy. So, spoilers, I'll say the essence of Circuit 7 right up front so that you have context for what's coming. Circuit 7 is about the personal discovery that the material world around you, the world of matter, is alive and that you participate in its creation in ways that aren't just physical, but also psychic. Now, this is a very misunderstood concept and it's often mischaracterized by people promoting wish fulfillment fantasies that they call manifestation. So I'll be covering several ways that people try to activate Circuit 7 and fail. I'll also be covering what proper Circuit 7 activation looks like. And we'll start with a personal story to ease our way into this subject matter. In 2016, I had a series of visions. I think they were hypnagogic visions. Looking back, this was clearly a period of Circuit 6 activation for me. I actually didn't believe in things like visions before 2016, but I can't deny what I experienced. Most of the visions happened approximately 13 to 15 minutes into sitting meditation. Some happened when I woke up in the morning, a few happened at other times. These visions were like flashes of a hyper-real reality. They lasted no longer than one or two seconds, but the imagery was remarkable. And the feeling that came about during these visions was also remarkable. These visions stopped around the time that I became obsessed with this image on the screen right now. I woke up from sleep one morning with an insight, a hypnagogic vision. I drew this image to capture the idea that had just occurred to me. This image is a configuration of three ideas central to the, the ebook that I wrote. I'll be talking about that ebook in part four. The key idea that's relevant to this particular story is that the observer that I write about in the ebook is at the center of this configuration. One evening at an in-office happy hour work event, I drew this image on a whiteboard for two colleagues. I explained the outline of my ebook and what this image meant to me. It was the first time that I had shared any of my fantastical ideas with colleagues. The next week one of them asked me if I'd go with him to the local library to return a book. This was a brief walk from work so I said sure. On the way there I looked down and I saw this. This is an etching in a concrete sidewalk in downtown Miami. This had clearly dried many years before. My colleague didn't think very much of it, but I understood this as a synchronicity, some sort of communication or confirmation that I was on the right track with my work and that I had done well by sharing that image with others. In the library, my colleague went to return his book. I thought I'd go find a book on C.G. Young considering the synchronistic experience I had just had. The book I picked up was this one, Polly and Young. My colleague picked up A Brief History of Time by physicist Stephen Hawking. I remember telling him that I had struggled to read that book, and as I was holding the book about Pauli and Young, I glanced at Brief History in Time, which he was holding, and I was surprised by what I saw. There was a diagram, a circular diagram with a smaller circle in the center, and a small person at the center of that circle labeled the observer. For me, this was the second of two meaningful coincidences relating to the same topic. These happened in the span of just a few minutes. I snapped this picture, convinced that placing the observer in the middle of my diagram had been the right way to configure the idea that had occurred to me. For some, like my colleague, the events in the story were just chance occurrences. Any meaning ascribed to them came from my own imagination. But for those who have been struck by synchronicity before, it doesn't totally matter what other people think. The meaning behind these events was very clear to me. What I love about this synchronicity so much is that it's so on the nose. Because the book I was holding, Pauli and Young, is all about C.G. Young's collaboration with his friend Wolfgang Pauli. Pauli was a Nobel Prize winning founder of quantum physics. He was a mainstream and influential physicist, as mainstream and influential as one can get. For example, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize by Albert Einstein. Young and Pauli worked together to create the theory of synchronicity. So here I am, experiencing the second of two back-to-back, -back, very personally meaningful synchronicities while holding a book about Pauli and Young's collaboration in creating the theory of synchronicity. It was just too rich for me. 
Jung and Pauli were convinced that the archetypes could not only influence the imagery within our minds, but could somehow also influence physical material reality. And fun fact, the word material and matter come from the same root as Maya and mother, so this wasn't exactly a new idea. What was new was that two of the world's most brilliant men of science were working on a theory about the relationship between mind and matter. Pauli himself experienced frequent synchronicities and he figured there must be a scientific explanation. Both men thought it would be possible to create a scientific theory explaining how the archetypes are the fundamental creative principle within our internal mental world called the psyche and also the fundamental creative principle in the physical exterior world of matter. Pauli and Jung corresponded for decades right up to Pauli's death. Together they wrote The Interpretation of Nature and the Psyche. Timothy Desmond's recent book Psyche and the Singularity is a great revisiting of Pauli and Jung's work and how it might relate to current day cutting edge physics. Desmond gives a helpful summary of some of Pauli and Jung's key ideas. Pauli and Jung postulated that our psyche and the physical world stem from one realm. In this realm, matter, space, and time emerge, and the archetypes exist in a pure, unrepresented state. This theory of an underlying unity underneath the physical world and the psychological world they call the unus mundus, which means one world in Latin. In other words, the physical world and the psychic mental world are two aspects of the same thing. Pauli and Jung thought it was likely that the laws of physics could provide a map for the laws of psychology. They assumed that we can infer unknown laws of psychology by looking at parallel laws in physics and vice versa. An encounter with the archetypes can happen in both the psychological world and the physical world simultaneously because it is all one world. A sense of wonder and meaning is experienced when this happens. We call that synchronicity. A full-on circuit 7 activation means that one sees the external world and our internal world as having no distinction. It's all an ongoing unified flow of experience. Any dividing line between the two is purely imaginary. Living with an open awareness of the unus mundus is like floating down a river. One's experience of life becomes a waking dream rich in layers of meaning. The river is the Tao as described in the mythical writings of Chinese legendary sage Lao Tzu. The flow of life is like water. If this life water is blocked, one's relationship to life becomes antagonistic and harmful, despite what happens. If this life water is allowed to flow, one's relationship to life will be peaceful, despite what happens. The idea that the inner psychic world and the outer physical world influence each other as part of a unified field sounds pretty magical and far out. People these days are dying to have some magic, so it's understandable that Circuit 7 gets mischaracterized. Some try to use magical techniques to activate Circuit 7, and it's hard to blame them for it. Status quo living is anything but magical. Here are some examples of ways that people attempt to activate Circuit 7. You've probably heard about The Secret, the best-selling book about manifesting what you want into physical reality. A basic tenet of the secret is that if you visualize a desire in your imagination and set an intention, the physical world will give you what you want. In my opinion, this is mostly a get-rich-quick scheme using esoteric ideas as a disguise. It's not too different from American evangelicals who preach the prosperity gospel. The people behind projects like The Secret become wealthy by selling the masses on an idea that anyone can become rich through magic. Speaking of magic, there's a specific kind of magic, magic with a K. People who practice magic with a K are also people who to me seem overly focused on transforming physical external reality through psychic will and intention. Magical folks love to refer to what's called the hermetic principle, as above, so below. They act out rituals in physical reality to invoke spirits and create higher realities that are more spiritual than status quo life. Doing so allows magical practitioners to transform physical reality in ways that they want. Aleister Crowley was and continues to be a highly influential figure in magic. This is the cover for one of his books, and that's Crowley on the cover. Crowley founded the Ordo Temple Orientis, an occult initiatory organization. I once attended an OTO black mass, 
and unfortunately I found it to be a ritual without soul. It was like watching a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons or an amateur theatrical play performed by very earnest, very welcoming and nice geeks. And I don't mean to sound insulting since I also consider myself a geek. Most of these magical activities, in my opinion, are performative. It's mostly play acting. Play acting secret rituals will not activate Circuit 7, no matter how earnestly you try. Reading from scripts won't get you anywhere near the higher circuits. And magic doesn't come through an individual psychic will or the learning of some cool, secret, esoteric technique. Robert Anton Wilson dabbled in some of Crowley's magic practices. You can say he was a fan of Crowley to some degree, as have been many people. Wilson's magical practices led to some interesting results, which he shares in some of his books. But Wilson was coming at these practices from a different place than I think a lot of people do. He had already done some work activating the higher circuits and understood something essential about magic that many practitioners don't. Wilson said, quote, this is more about altering perceptions rather than manipulating the physical world, end quote. Now, it is said that Circuit 7 is a circuit where apparent miracles happen in the physical world. When Circuit 7 is activated, the physical world seems to behave in magical ways. I have personally experienced bizarre occurrences concerning physical items in my own life, but I've never encountered anyone who can intentionally perform a magical act. The historical record is littered with claims of miraculous, physics-defying behavior by saints, gurus, and others. It is claimed that miraculous events would happen around Hindu guru Neem Karoli Baba. When asked about them, he would always say, I don't do anything. God does it. C7 isn't about special powers. It's not about levitating monks, faith healing, mind reading, or bending spoons like Uri Geller. I'll leave those things for debunking by skeptics like the late James Randi and for professionals like Darren Brown to perform. I'll mention some other popular methodologies that people use to transform reality through intention. These are more accepted in mainstream media. They are positive psychology, the work of Jordan Peterson, and neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. The still on the bottom is from an old yet still funny comedy sketch from Saturday Night Live. This character, Stuart, would talk to his reflection in the mirror and recite positive things about himself in a funny way. In positive psychology, there's this idea that we can reset our minds just by repeating positive thoughts to ourselves. If we replace negative thoughts with positive ones, we can in effect reset how we behave in the world and create positive change in society. NLP has become very popular in self-help circles and in the business world. I think it's fair to say NLP is about faking it till you make it. Supposedly, you can learn skills which will reprogram you into a more happy, successful state of being. You can create the person you want to be. If you are not a successful person yet, you can learn the behaviors, the postures, the walking style of someone who is successful. Then you can model that behavior until it becomes your own. Peterson's work seems to be a synthesis of Jungian-inspired psychology, old-school conservative values, and well-worn self-help advice. Peterson's book include talk of Jung's work on mythology, the hero's journey, and good old-fashioned status quo advice like clean your room, and focus on self-improvement before you try to fix others. He places an emphasis on one's ability to rewrite the story of me through something he calls self-authoring. All of this seems well-intentioned and harmless at first. Learning the traits of successful people has got to be useful in some way, right? There's nothing wrong with taking control of your life story and cleaning your room. Well, maybe. But I think these are all attempts to shortcut a deeper, more meaningful life transformation. My take is that these techniques are status quo game playing. These approaches can result in unintended harmful consequences. The work of psychologists like Freud, Jung, and many others show that this kind of overly positive, success-striving, take the bull by the horns, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, self-improvement behavior can lead to repression if not done cautiously and consciously. 
These techniques can become strategies to play act your way through life, forcefully asserting personality change without properly addressing your circuit one through four imprints. Doing this can lead to strong, unpleasant emotions and stress building up in the body. That can eventually lead to outbursts and behavior that is harmful to oneself and to others. Even worse, Gaber Mate, the addiction and attachment expert who I first mentioned way back in Circuit 1, argues that people who go through their life pretending everything is fine and always being nice are more likely to suffer from many types of diseases. He says the cause is constant inner stress. The work of Dr. John Sarno also speaks to this. Sarno spent decades making the case that most chronic body pain, like lower back pain, is caused by repressed emotions, especially anger. Another issue is how these practices, particularly NLP, involve a certain amount of manipulation of what others perceive about you. In my opinion, these practices can contribute to the fundamental issues of status quo society and can amplify our tendency to see others as pawns for our own personal gain and pleasure. In fact, the creator of NLP literally called himself a sociopath. Look, to be fair, these techniques and self-help in general may have some genuinely helpful tips for navigating certain life situations. Peterson has made a lot of money selling his books, going on speaking tours, and selling his self-authoring products around the globe. This is a testament to the fact that he's made a positive impact in how many of his followers navigate their status quo lives. But in my opinion, Peterson, with his self-authoring ideas, rules for life, and his talk of the mythological hero is likely possessed by the archetype of the hero to an unhealthy degree. He seems to be knowledgeable regarding some of Jung's work but he treats the subject in what I think is an overly intellectual way, falling into the trap that Marie von Franz talked about. I believe that Peterson fails to have internalized an important point in Jung's work. Jung wrote an exploration into his unconscious where he murdered the archetypal representation of the hero. This freed Jung from possession of the hero archetype. This allowed him to transcend the status quo. Peterson's possession by the hero archetype, in my armchair psychologist opinion, has led him down some dangerous roads emotionally, physically, and psychologically. Those same consequences can befall his followers if they're not able to free themselves from the delusion that rewriting the story of me can be done through circuit 3 intellectualism. Rewriting the story of me without proper higher circuit activation can be dangerous. If the true aim is to transform one's life, there are no shortcuts. You cannot fake it till you make it. I was tempted to cover the history of magic and witchcraft. That would be too much of a diversion for this talk. I can say that attempts to manipulate physical reality with non-physical means like incantations and invocations has been part of the human story since prehistory. I also won't cover the supposed but unproven physical and psychic aspects of poltergeist experiences. There is a fun story where Sigmund Freud got freaked out by a loud bang in the house during an intense argument with Carl Jung. I suggest you Google it if you're interested. But we have something more pressing and relevant to get to, and that is the subject of alchemy. The Western conception of magicians has been greatly influenced by medieval European alchemists. Alchemy is a ancient practice that deals with the phenomenon of transformation. School textbooks will tell you that alchemists were the predecessors to modern-day scientists, especially chemists. Alchemists were focused on transforming mundane materials into gold. Isaac Newton famously was an alchemist and who aside from his revolutionary scientific work was obsessed with finding the Philosopher's Stone, the ultimate alchemist prize. Before becoming part of the Harry Potter mythology, the Philosopher's Stone was known as a material that could turn mundane substances like lead into gold and could provide eternal life. Alchemy was practiced right up until the Enlightenment, when rationalistic thought and the sciences rose to cultural prominence. After close study of alchemical practices, Jung concluded that some alchemists 
were speaking allegorically about their pursuits. What they called the great work wasn't simply chemistry. Many were in fact looking to transform their humanity from something mundane into something transcendent. Von Franz says that, quote, for the alchemists, inorganic matter was not dead, but was something unknown and alive, which was not merely to be manipulated technically, but something with which one could establish and must establish a relationship to, end quote. The alchemical quest was really the pursuit of transformation into divinity. Alchemy wasn't a purely European phenomenon. Jung studied alchemical themes in Chinese Taoist writings like The Secret of the Golden Flower, and he marveled at how closely this paralleled the work of Western alchemists and his own personal work. To Jung, the alchemists were onto something, eventually concluding that some of them were aware of the Unus Mundus. He believed that the alchemists were enthralled and possessed by archetypal images like the image of the Philosopher's Stone or the Golden Flower. Through his exploration of alchemical work, Jung also came to a critical realization about the human unconscious. That dark basement dwelling within all of us actually has a goal. The archetypes are actually trying to accomplish something by appearing in our dreams, visions, and perceptions of the physical world. They want each individual to merge or marry the perception of there being two worlds one mental and one material into one world, the Unus Mundus. They want to bring us into Tao. This symbol is the mandala. Mandala means circle in Sanskrit. The mandala is a circle that is often squared and or contains four quadrants. It has a center point or center circle. This image is thought to be mankind's oldest symbol. As you can see here, it can be found in a multitude of cultural contexts all throughout history. This symbol represents the most transformative archetype one can encounter. This is the archetype of wholeness. Jung concluded that the unconscious isn't just some mysterious aspect of our psyche. The unconscious seems to be an essential part of an alchemical process that we can all participate in. If we can become aware of the archetypes, we can create a relationship with them. And eventually, we can realize that there is an unity underlying all the experiences throughout our lives. This unity is called the self. The mandala, the oldest and most ubiquitous symbol of mankind, is a naturally occurring image of the self. This image of the self appears in our psyche and in the physical world. Note that the term the self is used in various traditions and it doesn't always quite mean the same thing. The self I'm referring to here, young self, is quite like the self that many Hindu sages describe. For example, Ramana Maharshi said, the self cannot be found in books, you have to find it for yourself, in yourself. I personally experienced this. The mandala, the symbol of the self, appeared in my psyche and then in the physical world. And it brought me to an understanding of the Unus Mundus. I hadn't heard of Pauli and Jung's collaboration before. I didn't know anything about the Unus Mundus until that day. The mandala isn't just a psychological symbol. It isn't just artistic and it isn't just a religious symbol. It's also been essential to our success in manipulating the physical world. The mandala has played a critical role in material science. Our basic models of the structure of the atom are mandalas. There's also the story of Albert Einstein's Riemann sphere breakthrough. Einstein was suffering through extreme exasperation attempting to solve a problem. He was at his wit's end and wrote to a friend that if he didn't get help on this problem, he'd go crazy. His friend told Einstein to look at the Riemann sphere. The Riemann sphere is a three-dimensional mathematical mandala created by Bernard Riemann in the mid-19th century. Something in Einstein clicked when he read Riemann's lectures on the sphere. The mathematical sphere greatly affected Einstein and provided a catalyst for his work. Einstein used the sphere to develop his theory of general relativity. In physicist Michio Kaku's words, Einstein's reinterpretation of Riemann's famous 1854 lecture is now called general relativity. 
and Einstein's field equations rank among the most profound ideas in scientific history. Circuit 7 is the heart of 8 circuit yoga. This is where the dead robotic world around us becomes alive in unexpected ways. And it is the circuit where you can root the personality in something deeper than the status quo. But as I said before, there aren't any shortcuts to a full circuit 7 activation. You've got to go deep within into the realm of the archetypes. Jung said that there is a magical key which unlocks the closed doors of matter, and that this key is a deity dormant and concealed within matter, and the key is hidden in plain sight. This is an image from the HBO show Westworld. The first season of the show pulled major themes from Julian James' book on the origin of consciousness and named an episode after the book. I was really interested by how the show creators wove this image into the theme of the protagonist transitioning from living an empty robotic life into being fully alive. This is an image that C.G. Young would find lots of meaning in. I believe this because he chiseled a similar image out of stone for his retreat home. This image reads, I am an orphan, alone. Nevertheless, I am found everywhere. I am one, but opposed to myself. I am youth and the old man at the same time. I have known neither father nor mother because I have had to be fetched out of the deep like a fish or fell like a white stone from heaven. In woods and mountains I roam, but I am hidden in the innermost soul of man. I am mortal for everyone, yet I am not touched by the cycle of the ions." End quote. The figure at the center of the mandala is the mythological symbol of the Anthropos. Von Franz called the Anthropos central to the work of almost all important alchemists. The Anthropos is the image of a divine or greater man who must be freed from his imprisonment in matter and darkness. Through this work, the human liberator at the same time achieves immortality. Many ancient myths tell a version of the same tale, primordial man who is fragmented in the world and must be gathered together and made one. She says the Anthropos can be understood as mankind's group soul. It is an image of the bond uniting all of humankind. In Hinduism, the Anthropos is called the Atman. In mystic Judaism, this is Adam Kadam. In Chinese alchemy, this is the Qin Yen, or true man. Jung said, the Anthropos animates the whole cosmos. The spirit has poured himself out into everything, even into organic matter. He is present in metal and stone. Sci-fi author Philip K. Dick said, I identify him as Apollo. He appears to different cultures under different names. He is immortal and the great civilizing influence of Greece and Persia. He can divide himself and to me, he brought reason. This is a painting by Young in his Red Book. Here you see a solar Christian cross like mandala. Right below it, there's a figure holding a vessel above its head. This is where some Hindus and Buddhists place the seventh chakra. Both the mythologies of Christ and Buddha are of great importance in Young's work. But since he himself was a Western Christian brought up within a primarily Christian culture, he plays a lot of emphasis on the Christ image. Young felt that the Christian myth was a helpful representation of the Anthropos for those of us brought up in Western society. Young said that the indwelling of the Holy Ghost brings about a Christification of many. You might recall the Holy Ghost is a representation of the mother, the feminine archetype, the female energy of the world. So what Jung is saying here is that the divine feminine brings about a Christification inside of anyone who lets her in. And one is left to ask, okay, what exactly is a Christification? Christification means finding the self within and allowing its expression in this world of matter. This depiction of Christ 
shows his head at the heart of a mandala, again a representation of the seventh chakra. It's important to understand that this isn't about Christ we're used to hearing about from dogmatic religions, authorities, and manipulative preachers. And just in case the thought crossed your mind, no, you haven't listened this long to have been lured into joining a Christian church. This is about something deeper, something more authentic and numinous. Philip K. Dick called this trans-Christian mysticism. It's not limited to one culture, country, or religion. Von Franz said, Christ represents a collective soul, the one inner Christ within the multitude. This is about the true living Christ image, the Christ image that the Catholic Church and Protestant establishments have replaced with oppressive rules and outdated dogma. For 2,000 years, Christian power structures have twisted and distorted the image of Christ into a superhero who can somehow fulfill all of your wishes if you follow the rules. The true Christ is a representation of the Anthropos, which in turn is a representation of the self within the world of matter. Before this archetype was represented by Christ, it was represented by other figures like the Egyptian Osiris, the Greek Dionysus, and the Roman mystery god Ion. Dionysus and Jesus Christ were both referred to as the true vine of God. It's as if this vine is hidden within the world, and once you find it, you can latch onto it. And so again I'll say, it's like finding a particular frequency on a radio station, or a television station, or finding a Wi-Fi network password that was previously hidden from you. Some call this Christ consciousness. Iskon, commonly known as the Hare Krishnas, teach that the Hindu god Krishna can be reached if one achieves a state of being which they call Krishna consciousness. In Buddhism, you have the concept of Buddha nature. Buddha wasn't just some historical person. There is a state of being that is Buddha nature. Some argue that early Christians knew quite well that the Christ image was similar to other deities. There are theories that early Christians thought Jesus of Nazareth was a perfect representation of the Anthropos archetype. That Christ was a new representation that both Jews and Gentiles could recognize. Some people even think that Jesus' life is almost entirely fiction, simply a mystical teaching narrative written for a cult religion. But regardless of what exactly happened 2000 years ago, the historical record is clear on at least one thing. These early Christians were so passionate about their beliefs that many died defending them. Here are some quotes attributed to Christ in canonical and extra-canonical Christian Gospels. I knock, and if anyone should open to me, I will come in. Do not be of the world, as I was not of it, nor have I worked in it, but follow me and be perfect. I personally have experienced this sort of Christ image. I was raised Catholic as a child, and in my 20s I became something of an atheist. I shot down any religious or spiritual notion that people would bring up to me. As I began activating Circuit 5 and Circuit 6 on the regular, mostly in Hindu or Buddhist contexts, something startling happened. Many of the visions I mentioned before were undoubtedly Christian in nature. One of the most powerful experiences I've had in my life was also clearly a Christian experience. I would have not believed in any of what I'm saying right now had I not experienced this firsthand. So if you're skeptical, more power to you. I have concluded that Jung, von Franz, and others doing similar work are absolutely correct about this. There is a self archetype. This archetype is hidden in the material world and the Christ Anthropos image is a powerful representation of the self that we can experience for ourselves. This Christ is alive now, has always been, and always will be. This Christ image, the self hidden in the world of matter, is the living water. This is a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. Whoever drinks from my mouth will become like me. I myself will become he, and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. 
It is possible to hear the message of the self if you listen close enough. This is why the Christ image is called the Logos, the living word of God. The Gospel of Matthew says, many are called and few are chosen. This understanding of the Logos, the word of God, has striking similarities to what the Buddhists refer to as Dharma. I've discussed the Tao in this lecture a few times now. The word Tao can be translated as the way. Christ was literally quoted as saying, I am the way. And I believe the way is the same way. It doesn't matter what you call it. Now it's important to make clear that this experience of the Anthropos is available to everyone. A major pitfall of the higher circuits is that it's easy to conclude this experience is somehow about you as an individual. Circuit 7 can get activated in some people who lack the mental models to handle such an experience properly. People can become terribly destabilized by this powerful experience and take it to mean that they are the savior of mankind. This is a photo of Alvaro Thesis, a Brazilian man that says he had a vision while fasting in 1979. He has come to believe that he was literally Jesus Christ reborn. He started preaching and created an organization that some people call a cult. This is a classic case of archetypal possession. I have no doubt that what Alvaro experienced was real to him. But this doesn't mean he's any more or less special than anyone else. There's a lengthy Wikipedia page which lists people who have claimed to be the Messiah or Jesus Christ specifically. Ramdas would tell a story about his brother. His brother was convinced that he was Jesus Christ. When Ramdas would visit his brother in the mental hospital, they'd talk about it. And when Ramdas informed his brother that Christ was in everyone else too, his brother just simply refused to believe it. So let me break it down again since this is heavy, weird stuff. In high circuit six experiences, you can make contact and establish a relationship with the goddess archetype, the mother of the world. If this relationship is reverential enough, you will activate circuit seven in a stable manner. In circuit seven, you can make contact with the self hidden in the world. This is the Anthropos. Christ is the most well-known name used for the Anthropos. With both Circuit 6 and Circuit 7 activated in a healthy, stable fashion, one experiences the unity of matter and psyche firsthand. This is the Unus Mundus. The Unus Mundus can be represented mythologically as a sacred marriage. Male, female, matter, mind physical psyche. The sacred marriage is an alchemical, mythical, and yogic representation of the unity of the world. Jung was convinced that the experience of the sacred marriage of matter and mind was required of anyone who wants to fully understand what it really means to be human. This is a mosaic found in a 6th century Christian church. It seems to show Jesus and Mary Magdalene as a representation of the sacred marriage. Jesus is of the sun, representing God's light and male attributes, what the Taoists call yen. Mary Magdalene is of the moon, representing God's darkness and female attributes, what the Taoists call yin. The unification is a sacred marriage at the center of a mandala, where all things become one. This oneness is the self. Through this sacred marriage, this experience of the self, Jesus of Nazareth became Christ. And each of us can follow in his footsteps, even those that identify as female human beings. Jesus is quoted as saying, every woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is that if you make yourself the bridegroom in the sacred marriage, regardless of your human gender, you too will experience the self. This is strikingly similar to Jung's theory of the archetypes of anima and animus. This is an elaborate subject and also controversial, which could have a lecture of its own. But briefly I'll say that Jung called the feminine the anima and the masculine the animus. His theory says that we're all in some way imprinted towards one or the other and spend our lives looking for balance, 
most often in our romantic partners. In his way of looking at things, the ideal is to become, in some respect, androgynous by integrating both female and male forces in oneself. The bridal chamber is a recurring theme in Christian writing. The Gospel of John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The book of Revelation says, The spirit and the bride say, Come, let the one who is thirsty take the water of life without price. It also says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. From the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus is quoted as saying, When you make the two one, and when you make the inside as the outside, and the outside as the inside, and the upper side as the lower side, and when you make the male and female into a single one, so the male will not be male, nor the female will be female, then you shall enter the kingdom of God. He also says, where one is undivided, he will be filled with light. But whenever one is divided, he will be filled with darkness. Von Franz explained that alchemy can be viewed as a continuation and completion of Christian mythology. Christianity is on the decline these days. There seems to be no doubt about this. Von Franz believed going back to its alchemical roots can revive it and make it relevant again. The Christian story as it's currently taught has become one-sided, all loving and wonderful. It doesn't include the feminine or include the dark aspects of the divine experience. It metaphysically treats matter as dead and the material world as the realm of evil. Alchemy incorporates the light as well as the darkness. It treats the world of mind and matter as alive. And this alchemy is not just a theme in Christianity. Herios gamos, Greek for holy marriage, is the general mythological term for the sacred marriage. This theme can be found all the way back to Sumerian writing, the earliest writing in history. In ancient Greek mythology, a notable instance is the wedding of Zeus and Hera. In Tantric Buddhism, the symbolism of union and sexual polarity is a central teaching, especially in Tibet. This is called Yabyum. This is where the divine union of the opposites is realized by the practitioner as a mystical experience within their own body. In Hinduism, the gods are most often paired to symbolize the male and feminine aspects of the divine. The well-known figures of the lingam and yoni are often understood to represent male and female genitalia, but the symbolism runs deeper than that. This is about the sacred marriage. In modern-day Wicca, the Great Rite is a ritual based on this concept. It is generally enacted symbolically by a dagger being placed point-first into a chalice. This action symbolizes the divine union of the male and the female. Here again is the Tajitu symbol. The white represents the symbolically masculine and the black represents the yin, symbolically female. There's a Janus mandala on this slide and at its center is what most of us would call the Star of David, a symbol most commonly associated with Judaism. The upside down triangle represents the feminine and the triangle with the upwards point represents the masculine. Jung personally had his own literal form of a sacred heriogamos. He had a 40-year relationship with his mistress and collaborator Tony Wolf. Jung says that this relationship represented a mystical union of the opposites and he said he would not have been able to do the work of alchemy without her in his life and without her contributions to the work. People that experience a circuit 7 activation with full-on awareness face a choice. This is the choice between serving two metaphorical spirits. Jung called them the spirit of the depths and the spirit of the times. Circuits 1 to 4 are the spirit of the times. This is the social consensus reality around you, the status quo. The spirit of the depths is the underworld the unconscious mind where the archetypes of the goddess and the anthropos are calling for your attention. These human bodies of ours are meant to act in the world. There seems to be no doubt about that. But what motivates our actions? Is it the culture and society around us? Jung said no one alive is immune to the spirit of the times, so sure. But if we live solely based on the spirit of the times, 
aren't we disregarding an important aspect of our own humanity? This reminds me of something Christ said in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The goddess told early Greek philosopher Parmenides that she will do the talking, and it's up to you to carry her words once you've heard them. From the mainstream societal point of view, isn't that pretty risky? Like, can't these archetypes lead us down unpopular and uncomfortable paths? And don't they bring about madness? From the Jungian perspective, according to von Franz, our task is to become conscious of the larger presence, the self, and to give the utmost care to the unconscious, to nature, the goddess, instead of exploiting her. She says, we are given the challenge to serve the innermost ultimate center, the self, which is manifested in human beings as the image of the great all-embracing Anthropos and in the form of a mandala. There are those who argue that human beings have no free will. For these folks, life is totally deterministic and robotic. We are trapped by causality. I disagree. It may be true that we don't have the freedom to choose what thoughts occur to us, but we can choose which thoughts we will act on. Jung said that man is free to decide whether one's God will be the spirit or whether one will be addicted to the world. Early Christian Clement wrote that, My mystery is for me, which makes the election safe and free from care. Von Franz summarizes the Circuit 7 choice with a warning. Anyone who tries to dedicate themselves to both the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths becomes neurotic and unhealthy. She said, one must either yield to the conventional code of morality provided by the environment, or on the other hand, wait with a listening attitude for the creative decision to come from the self, and then muster the courage to act on it in spite the danger of error." End quote. So my personal choice was to go with the spirit of the depths. I agree with Christ's reasoning in the New Testament where he said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Some New Age teachers say that each of us must live our lives as artists. Each interaction we have with the people, objects, and situations in our lives should be viewed as an opportunity to create. The world is our canvas. And this is actually true, but they're missing something incredibly important. The artist isn't you. The art flows through you. If you've encountered the archetype of the united self, and you've decided to live in service of that inner self, the spirit of the depths, then you'll know that you're a channel for something immense. During one of my Circuit 6 experiences, a voice repeatedly sang, we create together, we create together. If you think you're the sole creator, if you think you're the artist, you've gone down the wrong path. Circuit 7 will never activate properly. This is a good time to revisit the subject of submission and emphasize the importance of surrender. Surrender is critical to a healthy, stable Circuit 7 activation. Surrender is a touchy subject, especially in the modern world where so many people have questionable ethics and take advantage of others so often. This is a scene from the Marvel comic movie Doctor Strange. It's an entertaining modern day myth about an overly rational jerk who discovers that Circuit 7 exists. The Ancient One, a female teacher, explains to a very skeptical Doctor Strange that the mystic arts can only be learned through surrender. What she says is very Taoist. I'll read you the exchange. The Ancient One says, you cannot beat a river into submission. You have to surrender to its current and use its power as your own. Doctor Strange replies, I control it by surrendering control? That doesn't make any sense. And the Ancient One says, not everything does, and not everything has to. Your intellect has taken you far in life, but it will take you no further. Surrender, Stephen. 
the surrender wasn't to her, that wouldn't be wise. And by the way, spoiler alert, in the film, she actually proves to be a character of questionable ethics, as guru and spiritual teachers often turn out to be. But her core teaching is correct. Gandhi himself said, when you make yourself zero, your power becomes invincible. Surrender should be to the self, the inner self, not to another person. And this is exactly what Dr. Strange learns to do. Here is Dr. Strange activating Circuit 7, tapping into the power of the mandala, an archetypal representation of the self. Through the power of the self, Strange manipulates both physical and spiritual worlds. Plato wrote, We may liken the receiving principle to a mother, and the source or spring to a father, and the intermediate nature to a child. This sentence pretty much sums up the foundation of Christian mythology. And please humor me as I'll now speak in mythological, metaphorical terms. The source of existence is God the Father. And we'll touch on that in Circuit 8. The Holy Spirit can be understood to be the Mother. The Son or Child of God is all of us. We are created through the union of the opposites. Through this paradigm, a person who makes the choice to serve the spirit of the depths is receiving the rightful inheritance as a child of God. The child of God is a vessel for the Father's divine will within the manifested world of the mother. As a child of God, your senses are God's senses, your hands are God's hands, your eyes and mouth are God's. This is actually the essence of the teaching found within A Course in Miracles. This is an immensely popular New Age self-help text that uses Christian mythology as a teaching tool. Like many things I've mentioned in this lecture, I think A Course in Miracles is misunderstood and often taught incorrectly. I've seen firsthand how A Course in Miracles can be taught like it's the secret, as if it were about magical wish fulfillment. The key to A Course in Miracles is surrender. Surrender to the Holy Spirit, the feminine archetype. This allows for one to realize the Anthropos, the divine Christ within. A Course in Miracles is closely related to Christian New Thought. This was a 19th century movement led by people like Mary Edith Baker, Phineas Quimby, and Rudolf Steiner. These groups got pretty cultish. Some hardcore groups advocate practitioners should avoid modern medicine. Supposedly the power of faith should be able to heal you. These groups provide us with an example of how Circuit 7 isn't about magical wish fulfillment. The realities of bodily sickness must be reckoned with, and people have died clinging to new thought ideals. For goodness sakes, even Dr. Stephen Strange, a Marvel comic book hero, goes to the hospital for treatment when he gets hurt. A Course in Miracles, Christian New Thought, and some forms of Hinduism warn that people unintentionally allow for creation of unpleasant and unhelpful life situations if they have not properly activated circuit 7. In some forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, Maya is the name for the female creative spirit of the world. Maya is sometimes referred to as something we must escape. I've concluded that it's not that we need to escape Maya, it's that we've allowed Maya to miscreate in the world due to our inability to reclaim the inheritance that the self has to offer. Many traditions have mythological representations for those who choose to serve the spirit of the depths. People who surrender fully to the self become pure vessels, totally open channels. The only motivation these people have in life is to serve the self. The famous Islamic Sufi Ibn al-Arabi says that after spiritual seekers reach the state of oneness with God, there is an unexpected turn of events. Instead of somehow becoming all-powerful and knowing, the seeker becomes the humble servant of the divine. These servants live in alignment with Christ's instructions to his apostles in the Gospel of Matthew, where he said, give as freely as they have received. Supposedly, when you interact with these sorts of people, you're not just interacting with someone's personal, individual personality. You're also interacting with the self in human form. Traditions around the globe recognize and honor such figures. This is an image of the Bodhisattva in Buddhism, 
In Judaism, there is the Tzadzikim. I may have pronounced that incorrectly. The founder of Hasidic Judaism said the Tzadzik is in union with God. He is the connecting link between God and creation, and thus a channel of blessing and mercy. And in this state of unification with God, it is a prayer of real ecstasy. This may even be able to overcome the laws of nature. In Christianity, these people are called saints. Saint Paul certainly made his choice. He said in his letter to the Galatians, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by trust in Christ. In Hinduism, there is the figure of the Satguru. Hindu guru Neem Karoli Baba would repeatedly say things like, I don't want anything. I exist only to serve others. Service to all is knowledge of the self. This is an image of Hanuman. Hanuman is a Hindu monkey deity. He represents the ultimate servant of God. Inside Hanuman's chest, right about the area of the solar plexus, the heart chakra, you'll find the god Ram and goddess Sita together. This is an archetypal representation of the sacred marriage. In Hindu mythology, Hanuman can literally move mountains, a feat that Christ famously said is possible. The important takeaway is that Hanuman uses powers in devout service to the self. Note that being in service to the self doesn't necessarily require conscious acts of charity or goodwill. It might result in charity and goodwill, but that charity and goodwill may look very differently than what your cultural ideas of what charity and goodwill are supposed to be like. And in any case, what's important is that in this state, one is surrendered to whatever comes through from the inner self. Like Ramana Maharshi once said, the difference between you and me is that I don't mind what happens. True service to the self means living your day-to-day -day life as an interconnected part of the whole of existence. Okay, so circuit six and circuit seven are a lot to take in. One question you might have is, is this real? Alistair Crowley had a great response to this question in his book, Magic in Theory and Practice, and I will now paraphrase. It is immaterial whether these beings, the archetypes, exist or not. By doing certain things, certain results will follow, and that's what matters. Crowley's students were warned against attributing objective reality or philosophic validity to any of them. And I'm in full agreement with that, although this is easier said than done. There are plenty of theories as to what's going on with Circuit 6 and Circuit 7. The archetypes like the goddess and the anthropos could be biological predispositions in the brain. They could be brain structures that we all inherit through DNA. One could say the sacred marriage is really an elaborate metaphor for neuroplasticity, the brain's scientifically proven ability to reorganize how it functions. It's been observed that if a specific region of the brain, or even an entire hemisphere, is injured or destroyed, brain functions can sometimes be assumed by a neighboring region in the same hemisphere or corresponding region in the other hemisphere. This depending on the area damage and the patient's age. The nervous system could be going through an evolutionary process in order to increase and improve communication between the left and right brain hemispheres. These are all fascinating ideas and for me having some objective explanation is cool. But it just isn't that important to me. Because we as individuals, from our subjective first person point of view, can experience this phenomenon as vividly real. In fact, once we encounter these archetypes for ourselves in a first person subjective experience, it's hard to shake off that they are divine in nature, regardless of what you know about brain science. The experience of personally encountering the archetypes can be really affecting. Questions about whether the experience was objectively true don't really matter that much at that point. Now another disclaimer here, if you find yourself being told by divine beings to harm yourself or harm others, this means you're not in touch with the archetypes I'm referring to, full stop. I want to leave zero ambiguity here. Proper activation of the higher circuits leads to a sense of healing, unity, love, and service to others. 
not to harm oneself or others. Anything else is an unhealthy, improper activation of the higher circuits. And there is a real risk of psychological and physical harm if one isn't careful. So if you or someone you know is experiencing voices, commands, hallucinations that promote harm, destruction, and pain, or are somehow taking over their lives in unhealthy ways, this needs to be addressed ASAP. Professional treatment is needed. So if you or someone you know is suffering from a mental health disorder, as of summer 2021, you can find international resources at findahelpline.com or simply Google free mental health resources for your hometown. I'll summarize some key points before moving on to circuit eight. Unos mundos is the experience of the internal and external worlds, psychic and physical, being two aspects of the same thing. The sacred marriage is a symbolic representation of this. The self is the archetype of wholeness represented by the mandala and the anthropos. All archetypes radiate from and can direct you back to the self. Surrender and service to the self allows for divine creation in the world. This isn't a matter of learning a skill in an online course or from me or following a guru somewhere on a mountain. This isn't a matter of simply being positive and imagining something nice happening to you. Circuit 7 is a deeply esoteric and personal matter that needs to be navigated very carefully and methodically. It starts in Circuit 6, once you've heard the call of the Goddess Archetype, and if you choose to create a reverential relationship with her, she will guide you to the Self. The final line of Goethe's Faust is, Woman Eternal beckons us on.